This episode of Just Ace is going to be a little different. This isn't a highly researched discussion of a topic. I know I've put myself into the story before, but this episode is my story. It's something I've been wanting to put on the record somewhere for many years. I love the band UMI, and when I was 15, I created a fan site for the band. This became the official site, and I got to be on the outer edge of their inner circle for a little bit. And for many years, to some small group of people, I was the UMI guy. And at such a young age, it defined me. I learnt a lot in my late teens and early 20s because of that band. Those years of my life are something I look back at with mainly positive but occasionally mixed emotions. And for years I've been trying to make sense of the context around me and what happened. And let's face it, this entire podcast, all this research and understanding, has been part of the therapy. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, well, this week we look at a kid who got to meet his favourite band. In 1995, I built this website when I was 15. There's a lot to say about the peculiarities of the website and the internet culture of the time, but that's an upcoming episode. Right now, what you need to know is I built this website for my favourite band, UMI. If you don't know who they are, go back a couple of episodes. But if you don't want to do that, just know that they're a band with three guys named Tim, Andy and Rusty, and they were later joined by a Davey. The website, the way it started, could have been like a personal scrapbook. It was the kind of stuff that I already put in various drawing pads and exercise books. You know, alongside trying to draw the perfect Batman logo were lyrics to songs that I loved and lists of bands that I liked. Regular teenage stuff. The thing was, it was the mid-90s and I was able to put it online. And I was far from the only one. There were other UMI pages and there were pages for all sorts of bands. There were fan pages for Big Heavy Stuff, Grinspoon, Snout and more. I know building websites wasn't something everyone could do. It required learning HTML, which I taught myself. But it wasn't like it was that special. Somewhere along the line, the band became aware of the site. Not just mine, I'm sure. And there was an email address, which I think I found on a CD single. And I emailed it, and I started talking to Kate, the band's manager. Then at some gig, not a you or my one, I met Rusty and said hello. And he told me he liked the site. I knew there was a chance that he was just being nice, but as I later got to know Rusty and how good he was with information, I bet you he did know the site. But all of this just never seemed like a big deal. Lots of people were making websites, and you and I were from Sydney. Of course I'd get to meet them eventually. I worked my way to the top of the pile for you and my websites by never dying. Other sites fell away and newer ones popped up, but mine remained and it was the place to go. So basically, by being the one UMI site that never died, and having somehow emailed people involved in the band, I became the owner of the official website for UMI. Again, this wasn't unusual. Chairpage was a popular silver chair website that became official. It kind of felt like how the Beatles had someone running their official magazine back in the 60s. It was official, but it wasn't like the Beatles were involved in making that magazine. You've lived on beans and rice. The site I ran had a couple of names, starting with UMI and me. It wasn't really about me, I was just playing around with pronouns. But it eventually settled on the name UMI Central. One time, years later, 
I was side of stage watching You Am I with Rusty's partner and future wife, Bunge. And Tim on stage declared that this song is for everyone who's homosexual. And there was a big cheer, to which Bunge turned to me and gave me a big smile and a thumbs up. I later told Davey, I think Bunge thinks I'm gay. He asked me why and I explained, to which Davey told me, no, Tim said, this song is for everyone from UMI Central. Anyway, there was one gig where people cheered at the mention of a website, and it was one that I built. For the next several years, I would run that website with all my heart. I love the band, but I love doing the website, running this little digital club, talking to people and getting information out. I also liked putting things in order, completing the information that was missing and collecting everything together. This was my life now. Around this time, there was a thing called ICQ. A little chat widget where you could talk to people as long as you knew their ID number. And I talked to a lot of you and my fans I was meeting on ICQ. ICQ was kind of brilliant, by the way. One person on ICQ, and I'm really sorry that I can't remember who, told me that I should talk to a mate of his. He wasn't even that much of a mate, he was just a kid who caught the same train as him to school or something. But this kid who caught that train was a big music fan and he loved bands like UMI and Oasis, just like I did. And I should meet this guy. And that's how I was introduced to Davey Lane. He came recommended. Now, he didn't live in Sydney like me. He lived in Melbourne. And he and I would just chat on ICQ. At the same time, I was getting my head and hands around playing guitar. And just like I was writing out the lyrics, I was trying to write out the guitar tabs. Davey told me that he worked out a couple of songs and asked me if I wanted him to tab some of them out. Sure man, every bit helps. And you know, I could probably fix any of Davey's mistakes. But holy shit, those tabs were beautiful. I know Davey and the band are sometimes coy about the whole Davey being a teenage fan who wrote the guitar tabs, and rightly so because that's not why he's in the band. But Davey just understood guitar and understood songs. My guitar tabs were basic enough for you to strum along to and sing. The tricky bits that sounded the best, maybe I had a go at working them out. That's how 80% of people play guitar. That's what 80% of guitar tabs are like. It's a guide. It's a sketch. It's enough. Davey's guitar tabs were the Mona Lisa of guitar tabs compared to my finger paintings. I don't know how to describe it to non-musicians, but they were Davey's musical brain on a text file. He had deciphered the tunings. He had named all the chord shapes, things like E flat fifth sus four. He knew where all the capos went and the correct fingers to use to make it easy. How do you hear which fingers they were using? Soon Davey and I talked pretty much every day. He helped with the site too, bringing ideas or filling in the gaps for things. I imagine in another time and if we lived in the same city, we would have been the kind of friends who maybe drew an indie comic together or something. Having something to work on was a big part of our friendship. Of course, Davey loved UMI and other bands and we could always talk about that stuff. And when we got together, he would show me all sorts of neat tricks that just seemed to come to him naturally. I would play a song on my guitar and he would play the same song on the same guitar and it would sound very different. He was just talented. He was probably the first talented person I ever met. And everything that came next for me wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Davey. In 1998, UMI were launching Number 4 Record, their fourth album, at Sydney's Enmore Theatre over two nights. Davey was with me. He had come up from Melbourne. And man, the show was great. I had been emailing with manager Kate 
and she told me to come and say hi after the show. I have never really gone and said hi to a proper band after a show. I wasn't even sure where to go after the gig finished, but I could see a line of people waiting to get in some door. Davey and I made our way there and then to the front to see a woman asking people to wait. Other people had passes and were eager to get in and see the band, but the woman, who I later found out was Kate Stewart, said the band would just need a moment and kept them all away. They have just finished the gig. She didn't look happy to be dealing with these scenester assholes. So I figured, well, we'll wait too. So we just stood there until Kate asked us, who are you? And I said, I'm Danny and this is Davey. We do the website. Okay, said Kate, you two come in. And suddenly my life was in color. I don't know why the two of us were allowed in when the official people with passes were not. Maybe Kate wanted to piss off the scenester assholes. Maybe she figured we were completely harmless and we weren't going to steal the band's drinks. Either way, here was Davey and I backstage at the Enmore Theatre. That's where I met Tim and Andy for the first time. Before anyone else came in, we sat around and we started talking. It was great to have Davey because between the two of us, maybe we held the conversation for two minutes. And then people came in and soon backstage was packed. The band had their own room with a bigger room outside. Davey and I hid in a smaller room where the band mostly stayed. Tim, bless him, introduced us to everyone, but not in a patronizing way and not about the website. He said to one person, basically, we work for the band. They are part of the team. You and I had been getting guests up to play guitar for one of their new songs called Come Home With Me that was on number four record. Now, you have to understand that Davey and I lived in a bubble. We didn't know there were things that maybe we shouldn't ask. And somehow we had a quick chat amongst ourselves and then thought, hey, maybe we should ask if we can play guitar on Come Home With Me. I mean, the ball's on me. Never have I had bigger. We spoke to Kate, who I think thought it would be fun and worth asking. So she asked Tim in front of all of backstage. She took us to him and said something like, hey Tim, you know how for come home with me? And then Tim finished her sentence. He looked at us and said, do you guys want to do it? There was only one show left in Sydney and then the band was going to Melbourne. So it was agreed that I would do Sydney the next night. I mean, feel free to stop and ask what the fuck is going on because suddenly I had talked my way on stage with UMI. I can only assume the band thought it would be a fun thing to do. And it was. So what happened was I went to soundcheck the next day. We ran through the song. Then the security guard was briefed. What is going to happen is that Tim is going to pretend he's too worked up to play guitar. Then he's going to ask if someone could take over for him. And then he would point to me and I would be standing near the front of the crowd. Security would drag me on stage, and then I'd play the song. Brad Shepard, the guitarist from the Hoodoo Gurus, and a good friend of the band, had turned up and wanted to play the song. But the band had already worked out this whole act with me. So Brad got the shaft. Showtime came and everything worked as planned. The song came on, and Tim did his thing where he was too worked up to play guitar and pointed to me. I didn't tell anyone this was happening, not even the friends around me, only Davey knew. Security pulled me out of the crowd and put me on stage. I just grabbed the guitar as soon as I was on there and started playing. I probably grabbed it too fast, it kind of killed the illusion that this was a spontaneous act. And then it was over. I'm not sure I looked up. I walked off stage and Brad Shepard was there. He smiled at me and said, was that all you got? 
and he patted me on the back. For years, I've lied about that moment. I lied about it straight after on that night because more than a couple of drunken guests came up to me or the band and kept saying, was that staged? How did that happen? And Tim would say, no, I didn't even see who put their hand up or something like that. The whole thing was about as real as wrestling. I mean, it's literally the guy who runs the website. He's on stage. Of course it was staged. But even years later, I would say, maybe Tim recognised me from helping out Kate or something, and that I actually hadn't met him by that point, and any excuse to keep the rock and roll fantasy alive. In the smallest, smallest possible way, I totally get why David Bowie pretends to be an alien. It's more fun to sell the story. Of course, Davey got up in Melbourne a few nights later, and he played guitar like a god. And if you want a story, well that's a story. After that Sydney show, we all loosely kept in touch. Tim was living in Melbourne now, and Davey told me that he was going around to meet up with Tim. He was maybe even going to have a jam. Cool, sounds fun. You guys are musicians, that's what you do, right? Tell me about it later. Oh, and we'll talk about Supergrass or something when you're back. What ended up happening to Davey, that he joined UMI, seemed like a total no-brainer to me. I thought Davey was destined to join UMI. Why wouldn't he be? He was the best guitarist in the world. In my mind, the only reason he wouldn't join UMI would be if Oasis asked him first. That was basically all the options I had laid out in my head for Davey. I want to be clear that this wasn't Davey's ambition, which was actually to have his own band and write songs. This was my ambition for him, because I was naive and my world was small. It never, ever occurred to me how weird this was, because it wasn't weird for me. I have no other frame of reference. There was a backlash against Davey right from the start. It was mainly the dudes. UMI fans were pretty much evenly split between male and female, and some of the younger guys really didn't take to Davey. And some of them, years later, would tell me that they hated Davey because they were jealous. How did this guy win the lottery? And a lot of them played in bands and played guitars. It could have been them. To these people, I've always been very nice. I say, Davey is just super talented and he fit in and he was what was needed and blah blah. But what I really want to say is, are you fucking kidding me? You're no Davey Lane. The fact he's gone on to play with everyone shows how special he is. He didn't win the lottery, his talent made it rain. Occasionally someone would ask me why I didn't join UMI. Like my dad asking me, are you going to join UMI as well? Like that was the path? I mean, I had no interest in doing so. I was very much enjoying and too busy organising the list of cover versions in chronological order of original release to do that. But take my life as the example of why it wasn't right place and right time for Davey. Because I was standing right next to him the whole time. Between the ages of 17 and 21, I got the best musical education possible. I mean, I already knew a lot at age 15, but I was going to learn a lot more, and not just because of UMI, but the people around UMI. I don't know if this would have been true if I had fallen in with another band. I love Regurgitator and I love the Phobes or whatever, but those bands weren't the encyclopedias of music the way UMI and the people around UMI were. Any conversation between the band and their crew and their sound guys and their roadies was always about music. And that obsession with music made its way into UMI's music. 
There are references in the lyrics to people like Leon Russell, Art Blakey and Lyle Lovett, all people I had never heard of before. And then there were cover versions done on B-sides and live. Who are these stooges? Who are these pretty things? I investigated the music of all these people. It helped having Davey. We traded CDs and talked most days about new albums we discovered. Davey was like having a brother because I would not buy albums that I knew Davey had unless I really wanted my own copy. So Davey would find all those later Who albums so I didn't need to get them, and I would get everything Elvis Costello instead. I pretty much spent all my money on records at this point. I also worked in a record store, and I was getting free CDs from being a DJ on FBI Radio, and I was starting to meet people who could get me free CDs. But still, I spent every cent I had on music. It was more than just learning about songs. I learnt about the world of music. I grew up in the wrong era for vinyl, and then one day I asked Rusty, and he gave me a quick rundown on the basics and more. Like why some singles have a bigger hole in the middle, and what an OB card is, and how to properly cue a track before playing it on a turntable. I was pretty good at scanning album names sideways from a CD on a shelf, but Rusty was super fast with vinyl, which was so thin and I thought unreadable. I asked Rusty how he could read them so fast, and he said I would just get the hang of it. This is some real Karate Kid shit, but way more nerdy. But I often thought it was Kate Stewart whose music taste was the best. Rusty would scare me with stuff like Sun Ra. Rusty likes madness and chaos, which when you think about it is a bit odd for a drummer. Kate liked beautiful things. Kate liked bands like Teenage Fan Club, and I always loved hearing Kate talk about music. There was one thing Kate liked that I didn't get immediately, and that was country music. But then she turned me on to Casey Chambers before her breakthrough album, The Captain. And then she lent me a Hank Williams CD. She was all over that old country thing before anyone else. Kate wasn't really one to argue with the boys or try to be more obscure or anything. For every 100 albums or bands that Rusty or someone else would mention, Kate would mention one. I mean, I still listened to Rusty when he told me to go and buy The Nuggets or Modern Lovers or Orange Juice. And this was before the internet was really a thing, remember? So for a while, Rusty was my internet. There was others. Tour manager Sean told me about a tape that he once got from someone. It had two albums on it, one on each side. One was this album by the Beach Boys. It was like a later one when they went a bit weird and it was called Pet Sounds. I didn't know that the Beach Boys went weird. And nowadays, Pet Sounds is one of my favourites. And then it took years for Side B to drop. Because Sean just mentioned that the other side of that tape was an album by The Birds. You know, The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, chiming hippie stuff from the 60s. But all he said was this album was when The Birds went country as everyone else went psychedelic. That was it. I realised that side two of that tape was Sweetheart of the Rodeo, this amazing album that The Birds did with Graham Parsons. Every casual aside was a whole world for me to explore. And then there was Michael Locke. Michael was a music writer who had moved from Perth. He was friends with the band, but he didn't know that many Sydney people. So we'd find ourselves together, not knowing anyone else, at You Are My Related Things. You can find his writings in the liner notes of Dress Me Slowly. I still have a copy of Stanley Booth's The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones that Michael gave me. He gave me a million CDs and taught me to be ambitious. I remember complaining to him about some crap band in a small pub once. I was kind of mad about how bad they were, and he said to me, Oh God, Danny, have you not worked out that most music is shit? And then he had a drink and smiled. Michael's not with us now, but I often hear something new and then wonder what he would think about it. I just have thousands of these stories. 
I was thrown into this world of music and I was blessed to learn all about it at a young age. Just a kid from the suburbs in Australia in the 90s, but I was learning all about 60 Psych or 70 Scar or old-timey country music and everything in between. I don't know if you would say that this obscure stuff was cool. It certainly didn't get me very far with girls or make me lots of money, but I knew how to cue a record properly. I wanted to learn bass at one point, and so I asked Andy for some advice. Who else would I ask? Obviously, I would ask the closest ARIA award-winning bass player that I knew. To my surprise, Andy gave me some tips, but he also just offered to lend me a bass. So we took a special trip, just him and I, to UMI's rehearsal studio lock-up space, and Andy climbed up on some gear and dug out a bass guitar for me to use. I was fascinated by how the band worked, like how they kept their gear, what kind of office they had, where they kept their tapes. Those early days for me hanging out with the band was a daily game of, oh, that's how that works. Of course, lending me a bass was incredibly generous of Andy. Lending someone a guitar is a cool thing, but he also didn't lend me just any guitar. You know the UMI film clip for Rumble? He lent me the one from the goddamn Rumble film clip. Davey would later let me muck around on his guitar stuff a little. He'd let me have a go at soundcheck, and I'd get to make noise in a big venue with a setup that cost more than your car. But that was only a few seconds. The rumble bass lived at my house, and it was cool. I wasn't sure what I wanted in basses, and as you know, basses are bigger than guitars. But Andy had these smaller basses called short scale basses. And I practiced on it, and it felt right, and I went and bought my own short scale bass, a proper expensive bass guitar. And I've played that short scale bass more than any musical instrument in my life. It's my favorite instrument, and my personal version of that guitar that Andy lent me. Now, a friend came around once and noticed the rumble bass, and it twigged to him that it was an indie rock famous bass. He wasn't a musician, but he asked if he could get a photo with it. And then a few other friends heard about it. And so for a short period there, I took photos of many friends as they came around, posing with the rumble bass in my bedroom or whatever. I'm sure they were glad to see me as well. In 2000, the Sydney Olympic Games were held in Sydney and it was a time like no other in Sydney's history. There was quite a feeling walking around the streets with so many people in the city and everyone feeling special. There's going to be a later episode about the Olympic Games and alternative music and how all that tied in together. But one of the nice things about it was there was actually a lot of bands on at the time. In public parks and in pubs every night, there were people around and looking for entertainment. My other really favourite band growing up was Crowded House. And in 2000, Neil Finn from Crowded House had gone solo, and apart from those Farewell to the World concerts in 1996, I had never really seen Neil Finn, and not solo. But during the Sydney Olympics, Neil Finn was playing a free show at the Domain, a big park in the middle of the city. So that was my chance to go see him. But earlier that day, before Neil played, I got to do something very special. I had organised time to just talk to Tim, just me and him. It wasn't planned as part of any promotion. It was just something that I asked to do because I was interviewing everyone. I really wanted to capture everyone in this world. And Tim was kind of just one of them. As was someone like Nick Tischler, who was UMI's first bass player, and by 2000 he was an experienced tour manager with bands like Pavement. I asked to interview him too, and Tim later told me that Nick had asked him about it and was worried about it and asked him if it was okay to speak to me. It was the first time I realised what I was asking of people. 
and that anyone might actually be concerned to talk to me. Tim was in Sydney to do two sold-out solo shows at a relatively small pub in Sydney called The Hopeton. So he made time for me before the gig to just have a chat. This was really my first and last time sitting with Tim Rogers one-on-one for a long interview. The interview took place at Tony Mott's house in Surrey Hills. Tony Mott is one of Australian music's most legendary photographers. His house had a long hallway with dozens and dozens of photos. Everyone from Paul McCartney to Marilyn Manson. It was a beautiful and clean home, not a mess of rock posters. We sat out the back in a lovely leafy garden on a beautiful November day. Tony grew up somewhere that had a train station that had been recently refurbished and he managed to take some of the old fixtures, including an old train timetable board. If you grew up in Australia in the 80s and 90s, you'll know the ones. The one that had a big analog clock at the top and spinning tumblers for every station name below. And so that's where it all took place. This garden of a beautiful house on a summer's day, surrounded by old train station fixtures, just me and Tim Rogers. The final scene of the film, Almost Famous, when William Miller is finally alone with Russell Hammond and they talk, always takes me back to that afternoon. I know where I was sitting. I know where Tim was sitting. I know where I rested my tape recorder. I know how the sun looked. I can describe to you every leaf in that goddamn garden. I wasn't nervous despite being so far from my comfort zone. I don't know, I probably had too much confidence as usual. If maybe I'd stop and thought about it, I could have appreciated the magnitude. Or maybe Tim and Tony were smart enough to make me feel comfortable without me even noticing. I burned through my pre-prepared questions and then we just talked. There are things that Tim said to me that day that I have never heard him say in other interviews. And trust me, I know. We talked about parents, poor Kelly and women. A lot of it I will always treasure and keep to myself. But I'll say one thing. Tim and I talked about old souls. Tim said to me that he never ever wanted to be younger and I feel the same. We both always wanted to be older. And how in life you sometimes meet these old souls. If you've ever gotten into a drunken late night conversation with me about old souls, know that it started in that Surrey Hills garden between me and Tim Rogers on a sunny day in the middle of the Sydney Olympics. Time was up and Tim and I walked down to Central Station to a park where bands were playing. I was due to meet up with friends. I told him that sadly, I was going to miss that show at the Hopeton tonight. I had to go and see Neil Finn. Tim got it. He knew Davey was a big fan too. I'd see him the next night at the Hopeton and I'd tell him all about how the Neil Finn gig was. I don't know why, but after hanging out with some mates, I decided, stuff going to the Domain. I just stayed in the area and then I went and saw Tim that night. The show was fully packed and then Tim started his set and he was wonderful, chatty and funny. And then at one point he asked some question of the crowd and I yelled out the answer. And Tim stopped and said, Is that you Danny? Shouldn't you be at Neil Finn? The Hopeton is just a small bar. And that night, I think probably everyone I knew was in that room. Tim later changed the lyrics to one of his songs to make fun of me for not going to Neil Finn. And I've never felt more amongst friends ever in my life. And that day, which I can still tell you was the 1st of November 2000, will always be a great day for me. You and my launched Dress Me Slowly at a very special gig at Luna Park in Sydney in 2001. It wasn't a public gig. It was a showcase that was filmed with invites to all media, radio stations, competition winners and various VIPs. It was broadcast on Channel V and broadcast on Triple J. I was given the chance to invite some fans to help fill the room. 
because the band always wanted to play to fans. I used to look after the fans. That was my main job for the band, I guess. It wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last, but the band was often asked to do some sort of special show and the band would say, can we give Danny some tickets? They had me who could always get 20 or 50 or 100 fans in without having to do too much. There were times when I was with the band on some regional show and we'd be backstage afterwards winding down. Well, the band would be, but I'd go and talk to fans. I loved this time. You'd meet people at a gig like at Tumby Umby or something, and I'll be talking to some kids who drove 30 kilometers away, and I'd introduce them to other kids who were also 30 kilometers away, and then they would make plans to meet up later. God, I really hope those Tumby Umby kids formed a band. But sometimes, the band would ask me to bring some people backstage. I think they just wanted someone new to talk to sometimes. Tim would say, hey Danny, do you have any friends out there? Do you want to bring a couple of them back here? And of course I had friends. Every You Are My fan was my friend. I have good memories of just sitting back and watching the band talk to fans. It's amazing to watch someone as they're in a moment that they'll never forget. Sometime later, I'd usher them out. And as I'd walk with them, their cool would sometimes break and they'd shriek or something and say, oh my God, Danny, I just met Tim Rogers. I've had so many incredible conversations with fans. I don't remember all their names, but I remember their stories. Emails that came through late at night from someone feeling so much about music that they just had to email a guy who ran a website. The people for whom Heavy Heart means everything, or Tim's solo record. The soundtracks to their first heartbreaks. People's theories on what the songs were about. The fan who listened to nothing but purple sneakers over and over one day because it was a bad day. The girl who asked me when her boyfriend turned away if I thought her boyfriend looked like Tim Rogers. Every word was said with love and vulnerability. I'd like to think I paid that back by listening and allowing them to geek out and be vulnerable. I felt honoured that they were sharing this with me. And through that, I learnt the thing that most people know, that people who love something are the best people. People who love something are extremely attractive, and people who love nothing have nothing to say. But back to Luna Park. Around this time, I found a cool vintage suit at an op shop that actually fit me. I wanted to wear it to the show, and I wrote that on the website, and just flippantly suggested that people should get dressed up too. I saw some stuff in the chat and the message boards, people asking if it was something that people had to do. So I started to push it. I said, yeah, you had to dress up. On the night, it was wonderful because the people from the label, BMG, and various guests rocked up in standard t-shirts and jeans and sneakers. But groups and groups of fans rocked up, looking like a weird indie rock school formal. Young men and women in vintage suits and dresses, dozens and then hundreds. A couple of the people from the label were confused. Why was this happening? Who told these people to dress up? But at least I know the crew thought it was cool. As one said to me at the time, well, at least you can clearly see who the dickheads are. There wasn't an official resignation from me or anything. But in 2003, I gave the keys to the website to a couple of other fans. And the label was sort of doing mini-sites to promote the band's new albums, but they really actually wanted more control of the website. Also, I was working full-time for a rival record label. I remember feeling that I was in the way. So I sent the managers an email and that was that. By that time, around 2003, 
I had been doing this from age 15 to 22. Those were huge years. And I had changed so much. I had moved out and I was living on my own and I was working in music and playing in bands and had a radio show and I ran a zine and God knows what else. You and I weren't the only thing in my life anymore. For many years leading up to that, and for years after, I was known as the UMI guy. Hey, you're Danny, the UMI guy. And that was great when the band was on top. It wasn't so fun in the early 2000s. The music world had changed and there was a rise of these new indie bands like The Strokes. But there was this rise of this new indie snobbiness and toxicness. Not that I knew that it was that toxic at the time. At the time, Toxic was just a Britney song. But people, like total strangers, would come up to me at places and just yell, you are my shit, and then walk away. I mean, silly juvenile stuff. But these people were my age or even older. More than a couple in bands that could have been but never were gave me shit about UMI. How could you like them, Danny? They're so straight rock. Tim's voice sucks. We've all heard the who. Just people would shit on the band to me and challenge me to explain why they were so good or some other stupid indie rock nonsense. They would just stop me in the pub and challenge me. It was something that happened all the time and really often. I would say several times a year and in those dress me slowly and deliverance years, maybe once a week. Mostly these men, and always men, were drunk. And it was one of the main reasons I didn't drink in my late teens and early 20s. It was a way to avoid drunken fights about bands. It was the opposite of being in UMI's world, where everyone was so protective, mentoring and caring about me. The world of indie rock inner city pubs, well, it had a strong element of shitting on others to make yourself feel better. And for years I carried other people's shit around. I wondered why these people were attacking me. Look, I was smart enough to realise that the whole situation was caked in a really thick layer of bullshit and that none of it was my fault, but why was this bullshit being directed at me? But I don't think it was about me. In more recent years I've realised it, it was jealousy. Simple, eternal jealousy. I can think of one person, someone who was a friend and someone I went to gigs with, who later became a dick and has since apologised to me decades later. He just said, I was so jealous of you. You got to hang out with my favourite band, and I hated you. I think of the wankers and the second tier bands who came at me. People with songs on high rotation on Triple J. And if their singer hated you or my, and really wanted me to know about it, I also knew that at the time that their manager had been trying to get them a UMI support. I assumed they got a no and the bitterness grew until one day they saw me at the pub and they had to have a go. And I don't even think it had to be as big as missing out on a specific UMI show. Just the fact that UMI were successful drove these dickheads nuts. Of course, none of them made any music that anyone remembers or will ever make a podcast about them. So their nightmare of being an obscure nothing came true. Look, I'm all for killing your heroes. This era of the 90s was all about a rush of new bands and new voices. But I don't think Ratcat went up to Nick Cave fans and told them that they sucked. Being the UMI guy also started to limit me. I love that band, but I don't like every retro-leaning guitar band. I quite liked, say, The Streets, and I wore a Streets t-shirt once, and a person I knew from around gave me shit about it. People also gave me shit about not drinking. You and I have a lot of songs about drinking, and they do that whole good time bar band thing. I saw a hundred You and I shows above the drinking age and never drank a drop. And people would ask me how I could even like You and I and not drink and then they would literally try and spike my drink. This bad stuff was bad, 
It made me feel terrible. It made me want to die sometimes. But the main thing I feel about it now is how lucky that the guys in UMI were so good. I told Tim once about how people hassle me for not drinking. And Tim simply said, if anyone did that again, let him know because he would just kill him. You see, UMI, like many bands, like every band maybe, created a bubble around themselves. It's hard to get into a band bubble. There are in-jokes and shared experiences and there's just no way in unless you're in. I love that bubble and the people in that bubble looked after each other. But sometimes in those years, I would find myself outside of that bubble and not protected and dealing with the cutthroat insecurities of indie rock wannabes. But for me, I had to leave the bubble. The bubble was moving on and I didn't want to be the UMI guy anymore. I wanted to be able to like the streets and not get hassled. Turn the page. Let's move things forward. Eventually I moved overseas. Sydney got too much. And the odd thing was, thanks to Steve Jobs' iPod, I carried around UMI's complete discography every place I went. And listening to that music, free from everything, I fell in love with it all over again. I hadn't listened as just a fan in so long. Now, there was no point in me telling people from London that my favourite band was UMI. No one had ever heard of them. My personal email also had the URL yowmi.com and these new friends would occasionally ask me what the hell that meant. So I would tell someone the story of how, as a teenager, I had this sort of involvement with this pretty big rock band back home. In 2008, I took some friends of mine to see Tim play at the Borderline and I realised it was the first time in maybe 10 years and several hundred shows that I was taking someone to see UMI who had never seen them before. They didn't even know the music. I had never felt more anxious about a show. I don't know why, but I really wanted Tim to be good that night. I've seen Tim a lot, and some shows are fine, and as a fan you love it, but not every show is Tim being S-tier Tim Rogers. I really cared about how my new friends were going to take it, because of how it reflected on me, but also how much I loved these people I was with. I know how good Tim can be, I wanted them to see it. Well, Tim Rogers at the Borderline in 2008 was more than good. It is probably my favourite time seeing Tim solo. His voice was spectacular. He came on and told hilarious stories that would have charmed anyone. And the crowd sang along and everyone in the room, even the ones that didn't know the words, knew that they were witnessing something special. I was bragging by the end of it. How great was Tim, right? Man, I used to hang out with that guy. They were my band. A few years ago, I met someone who told me that they learned to play guitar using the guitar tabs I wrote. This person joked that I taught them guitar. I mean, on one hand, of course not. You or my inspired you to learn guitar, and you taught yourself, and I gave you some cheat sheets to follow, and chances are they were actually written by Davey anyway. But on the other hand, it was a nice thing to say, and I'm learning to take the compliment. That people still, to this day, appreciate on some level something that I did over two decades ago is strange. But I don't have to feel strange about it. I'm working it out, how I feel about this thing called your own life. The last time I saw Tim Rogers was on the street. It was actually the corner of George and Bathurst Street in Sydney, across the road from the KFC, maybe 30 metres from the town hall steps. Tim's look changes a lot, but on this day, he had big wild hair, a fancy suit and sunglasses. But even without the rockstar hair and the rockstar suit, he's so tall that anyone would have noticed him. He was also so strange. 
He was just standing there and smiling and looking up at the buildings on a sunny day. He didn't cross the road when the lights changed. People around him weren't looking up. This was the middle of the day in the middle of the work week. Other people had their heads down trying to get somewhere. And I was trying to get somewhere, just from building A to building B for some work thing. I didn't say hello. I thought about it. I tossed up saying a quick hello, but that seemed empty. I thought, screw work, maybe I should see if he wants to have a drink. But then I thought better off it. So I left him to it, just standing there, just smiling. He was looking at the city, and it occurred to me that this is how I want to see Tim. He was happy, and I personally like seeing him in Sydney, and he was seeing something that I could not see. And his mind was ticking over with the details of something. And as I walked away, I thought, well, I can't wait to hear that song. I have a hundred more stories and anecdotes. This episode was three or four times as long at one point. I'll write it all down one day, even if no one cares. I chose the stories and anecdotes that tried to make a point about a few things. Mainly, having a favourite band and something that I madly loved was great. My love of that damn band meant that I was inspired to learn guitar or learn to sing or learn coding and graphics and copywriting and marketing and how to deal with people and probably dozens of other hard skills. Look at cosplay and that whole scene has really taken what people loved about music and concentrated on the fandom side and took away the music. Those people who dress up have learnt design and craft and usually how to self-promote and all kinds of stuff. I'm sure it's the same if you love sports or gaming or putting replica swords on your wall. And when they found that thing they love, they made friends with people who love the same thing. And that's why I love the internet. You can connect with subgroups. It's underground. It's indie. It's the alternative to the mainstream. Life is lonely. Life is hard. Life is full of strangers ready to fuck you. Surround yourself with people who love the same things you do because they will love you too. And then fall in love with something. Bands are good, not politicians. And then fall really hard for it. Don't stop falling. Even if people tell you it's not cool, find someone to fall with you and then see where that takes you. And that's really the only advice I have for anyone on this planet. I just keep that voice on your shoulder that steers you Out of the corners that night won't swallow you up When you know, when you know what you want when you Okay, you've really come to the end bit now. The end of season two. Thanks to everyone for your support along the way. So what happens next is a break in season three in the second half of this year sometime. If you've enjoyed the season of the podcast, then please check out some of the links in the description. Like any independent media, I could use your support. Like supporting me on Patreon, where you will get an ebook of the scripts and my eternal gratitude. Or you can leave me a tip with a tipping service called Buy Me A Coffee. And don't forget the Redbubble shop, where you can buy some merch. There's no cost ways to support me as well, which are just as important. Quick, before the season is over, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, follow me on social media, and just share the podcast with a friend. Spread the word. It all helps. There's websites with mailing lists and playlists. I'll update the playlist for season two very soon. 
their social media channels as well in the usual places. The URL is justace90s.com, which is justace90s, and the same is for the username across social media. And hey, you can email me as well. All the links are in the description. So okay, that's it. Thank you once again for Season 2 and your support. I'll see you in a few months, and we'll pick up the story in 1995. And if everything goes to plan, it will start with Alternative Nation, Somersault, and all the music festivals going to war.